Welcome to the Reclaim Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Whether you're a part of our Reclaim Church family or just tuning in for the first time, we would love to connect with you on Instagram at Reclaim Church or at our website at reclaimed-church.com. We hope this word encourages and inspires you today. Let's dive in. Last week, we're still in the series on the book of Titus. Last week, we finished chapter one. Paul wrote this message to Titus to make sure that um, he's building up the church of Crete, the churches that he was establishing there. He kind of ended the letter talking about um, the shortcomings of the false teachers and the people that were kind of leading people astray at the time. And in chapter two, he starts us off talking about how Titus is meant to live his life. So we're starting off in chapter two. We're going to do verses one through 10. And this whole um, portion today is all about the way to live. So super practical. He's just giving us kind of um, characteristics for mature believers. How many of you guys want to be mature, right? Or if you're from the north, it's mature. Did you guys know that that is the correct way to say mature? I didn't know that. I remember one time hearing a um, scholar actually say mature, and I told one of my friends, I was like, this guy's like supposed to be smart, but did you hear how he pronounces mature? Like, I thought it was hilarious, and they're like, no, that's, that's correct. That's how you pronounce mature. So it's either mature or mature. So in case you didn't know that, you've already learned something, all right? So jot that in the side of things that you learn, all right? So Titus chapter two, here we go. He says, as for you, as for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. So again, he's separating him from the people that he talked about near the end of chapter one. He's going, as for you, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. All right. So the way that we live should reflect what it is that we learn from this book. So even though we don't always want to, even though we don't always agree with it, possibly scripture teaches us the way that we're meant to Live. Um, this word promote in the Greek can, can actually refer to talking about how um, ink can leave an impression on a piece of paper or something like that. The way that you and I are supposed to live is meant to be a way that we can leave an impression on the people around us. So the way that you and I conduct ourselves at work in our marriage, at school, it leaves a lasting effect on the people around us. Even if at the time they don't necessarily agree with us, they can still um, look up to the way that you and I are conducting ourselves. So the first job in chapter one was all about Titus kind of establishing the church, setting up elders in the church. And then chapter two, it's all about maturity, maturity inside of the church. All right. So He proceeds to talk about the standard of Christian life. So again, that's going to be all we're going to kind of talk talk about today is the standard, the goal that you and I should live our lives. So as we go throughout the next, um, you know, 10 verses, I don't want you to just kind of look at it as words on a page or how people were meant to behave in ancient culture or just on the islands of Crete, but we should try to look inward read the standards because he's going to get into the kind of the standard of older and younger men and older and younger women and how they're meant to conduct themselves and live. I'm going to challenge you guys to look into yourself and think, what am I known for? What do the people at work kind of know me for? What is my reputation? You know, what things could I possibly work in? And when it comes to this standard, are there areas that I'm falling short? Are there some things that I need to work on. So I kind of want you to keep your ear out for anything that sticks out to you and you go, ugh, I don't think I have a good reputation in that particular area, or I don't think I'm known for really acting like that, maybe the opposite. All right. So again, this is Paul writing the letter to Titus, very similar to the type of letter that he wrote to 
Timothy when Timothy was in Ephesus. So the letter to Ephesians, that was the same place, Church of Ephesus, where he wrote the letter to Timothy. And he talks kind of about the same exact topic when he writes the letter to Ephesus. So I thought we'd go ahead and read that real quick before we jump into verse two. So this is Ephesians chapter four, verse 29. Again, we want to make sure we're seeing anything that sticks out to us where we go, well, I probably need to work on that. So Paul says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who will hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ Jesus, has forgiven you. Again, he's kind of revealing what maturity looks like for you and I. Again, it's a lot easier to read on a page. It's a lot more difficult when someone actually wrongs us when someone actually hurts us or betrays us. Everyone can be mature when things are going our way. My one-year-old is really good at being mature when we do every single thing he wants. But the moment he doesn't get exactly what he wants, what happens? And then you and I claim that we're very mature, but then the moment we don't get exactly what we want, here comes the anger and the rage and the refusal to forgive others because we claim that we are justified in our poor behavior. When the challenge of scripture is we are meant to have good behavior despite the way that other people treat us. All right, so got one verse done, nine more to go, heading down to verse two where he starts to single out um, older men. He starts with older men and he says, teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Again, Paul wants Titus to know that they must live with maturity, mature wisdom that comes with age. Because the goal is, as you get older, you get wiser. How many of you guys know it doesn't always happen like that, though? Just drive around a few roundabouts in the villages and you will find maturity doesn't always come with age, but that is the goal, all right? So Titus probably had a challenge here. I mean, he's a very young man and he is tasked with teaching older men. I'm sure glad I've never had to do anything like that, but there's possibly a challenge that comes along with it because people tend to look down on you due to your age. And that's why Paul looked over to Timothy and said the same thing. Don't allow people to look down on you because of your age. Stand true to the call that God has given you. So he's speaking now to older men and they're meant to live with self-control. That's how the NLT version translates it is self-control. Men should have self-control. If you're going to be successful, you have to learn first how to control, get this, this is crazy, not other people, (laughs) but yourself. If you're going to have a good life, an enjoyable life, you don't have to control everyone else in your life. You have to control yourself. Because this might come as like a real shock to you guys. I don't know if you've actually thought about this, but for a moment, let's think about every poor decision you've ever made. For some of you, this is a list, all right? Think about every poor financial decision you've made, relational decision you've made, professional decision you've made, right? We have a few, right? Think about all of those messed up decisions that if we could go back, we would change, right? Did you know for every single one of those decisions, guess who was there? It was you. You were there to convince yourself every single time that this is a great idea. So chances are 
many of us aren't the best leaders, all right? So we have to first learn how to control and lead ourselves. In reality, the problem isn't really out there. The problem is in here. So when we step into wisdom, many of us want to be wise. And in order to step into wisdom, we have to first learn to control ourselves. It's not what's going on out there. It's what's going on in here. And if we're going to be successful, a successful believer, a successful father, a successful husband or friend, whatever the version of success that our goal is, we have to learn to first be disciplined. We have to learn to choose what we want most over what we want now if we're ever going to embrace true wisdom. We have to learn to love discipline. (laughs) All right, Proverbs 12, chapter 12, verse 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Whoever hates correction is stupid. Because again, if we're going to be successful, if we're going to be wise, we have to be disciplined. Because in order to say yes to something, we have to say no to something else. I remember listening to an interview one time with Mike Tyson, and this stuck out to me so strong. He said, I don't care how good you are at anything. If you don't have discipline, you're nobody. You have nothing. And I remember listening to him say those words. And I'm serious. When it's in his voice, it hits me all the stronger. Like I'm like, wow, that, that really meant something. But it's true. If you have discipline, if you don't have discipline, you're nobody. You know, and they'll ask him, um, you know, whenever he was training, you know, why why did you wake up and run at four in the morning? Like, this is your full-time job. Why didn't you do it at eight or nine or 10? What was the reason for waking up at four in the morning? He goes, because I didn't want to wake up at four in the morning. And he said, I had to remind myself that I had to be disciplined because in order to be a champ, I had to first behave like a champ. And he said, so I woke up at four in the morning because no one else was willing to wake up at four in the morning. And he lived his life with crazy amounts of discipline. And because he lived his life disciplined, he achieved a massive amount of success. Maybe not the success that we're talking about this morning, but nonetheless, he achieved massive amounts of success, right? He became the youngest heavyweight champion of all time. Why? Because he lived an extremely disciplined life. You look at people like Khabib to be able to go 29 wins and zero losses had the longest reigning champion. Like he was the champ for years. He was a lightweight champ for years. And why? Because he lived a disciplined life. They'd ask him, you know, you know, what do you, what does your daily routine look like? And say, well, I wake up, I train, I eat, and I sleep. He goes, there's time for nothing else. You know, these people are not like binge watching Hulu. Like they had success on their mind and they're like, there is time for nothing else. And he said, if you're willing to work hard, you can have anything. But if you're not, step out of the way for people that are. I mean, these people had laser focus, a different version of success. You listen to people like Elon Musk and he says the same thing. He's like, I wake up, I work, I eat, and I go to sleep. I mean, the wealthiest person in the world was working like 120-hour work week, seven days a week. Like, this guy worked like crazy. Do you know what I would be doing if I was the wealthiest man in the world? Not working seven days a week. Do you know where I would be living? I would not spend three years living in a factory. When he was fixing the supply chain issues, he lived in a factory for three years and slept on the factory floor in the center because he said, I want my workers to see when they come in the morning that no one's going to work harder than me. I believe in what it is that we're trying to achieve. You know, like for Elon, it wasn't about the money. Like he would literally sell all of his possessions and live in a tiny home. And people ask him, you know, why are you willing to do that? I was watching one interview where they asked him, Allie hates when I talk about Elon Musk, but it's a true obsession and there's a reason. He is successful. They asked him, you know, hey, are you ever going to design and build your own home, like a Tony Stark type of home? And he paused and he goes, I've always wanted to design my own home, but I had to think, should I spend time designing my own home or figuring out a way for clean energy and for us to be the first multi-species planet? for us to be the first species on multi-planet. And he goes, I think the latter. 
And it's like this guy lives a disciplined life where he's so focused on his goals. And many of us, we don't live our lives focused on our goals. We have goals of being a great husband, a great father. You know, we, wanna, we have a goal of leaving a legacy. We have a goal of leaving an inheritance to our children's children. Like we have all these goals. If we were to do, to do like a um, pro presenter slideshow and like lay out the goals of everyone in the room. And then if we were to lay out our daily habits, they probably look nothing like our goals. And it's because many of us have these great goals, but we've never really embraced discipline. And if you're going to be an amazing follower of Christ, you have to learn to embrace discipline. You have to have self-control to say no to some things and yes to others. I hear people all the time talk about how they, they want to know God better. They want to know the Bible better. But you go on their screen time and they've got like four minutes for the whole month on the YouVersion app. And you're like you have six hours a day on Instagram. Like there might be a disconnect here. You know, we have these goals of what we want to know and what we want to achieve, but yet we have these habits that are completely different, right? Remember, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our habits. I'm not saying that you have to know the scriptures. I'm not saying that you have to be Elon Musk or you have to be Mike Tyson. But the question is, who do you want to be? Do you want to be a mature believer? And I'm not saying you have to be. Again, this is your life. But if you want to be a mature believer, if you want to be a successful father and a successful husband, you're going to have to put some disciplines in your life in order to achieve them. You're going to have to realize, you know, discipline is choosing what I want most over what I want now. What I want now is to sit on the couch, to zone out because I had to work eight hours today and life was stressful. But what I want most is to be, a, to be known as a loving father. What I want most is to be able to understand scripture. So maybe I should take 10 minutes out of my day and read it. We want to make sure that our habits are, reflection, are a reflection of what we want most and not just what we want now. Because what will happen is we'll spend our lives on entertainment mode, scrolling through Instagram, through, scrolling through TikTok, binge watching movies. We'll spend our lives zoned out in our minds and then we'll get to the end of our life and we'll wonder why we've never achieved a version of success. And it wasn't because your goals were misplaced, it's because your habits were. So we want to make sure that we are people that embrace discipline. Because like Mike Tyson said, you are a nobody. You're a nobody if you don't have discipline. And we want to make sure that we are a somebody. Again, I'm not saying that you have to become the youngest heavyweight champion of all time. All right, chances are many of you guys passed the, the, um, the um, age limit off. Oh already, okay? So you can't do that. All right, but we can become successful and mature believers, all right? That is the goal, is to become successful and mature believers. All right, verse three, already got a few done. Verse three, similarly, teach the older women. So we talked about the older men, that they need to have self-control, that they need to live their lives worthy of respect. And then here, we're going to talk about older women. Similarly, teach older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. All right? We should teach others what is good. Now, just because you're a woman doesn't mean, you know, you're automatically a slanderer or a heavy drinker. Maybe some of you are. But the, the thing is, is depending on your gender, statistically speaking, some of us are bent towards more other particular sins rather than others. Men are going to be bent towards a particular sin different than what a woman is bent towards. Women tend to be, statistically speaking, bent towards something called slander or better yet, gossip. Now, I know no one in this room has ever struggled with gossip because we're very sophisticated people. And gossip is not a sophisticated word. So the only women that I've come in contact with have only ever struggled with something called venting. Now, venting is very classy, all right? If you're a woman here, you know, you're, you'll agree like, hey, venting's needed, venting's classy. Like, yes, I vent, 
but I never gossip, all right? And many of us, you know, we did a whole series on necessary sins. Many of us deem things like venting as necessary because we know gossip is wrong. Like, gossip's, like, messed up. Like, that's the girl down the street that, like, doesn't let things go. But, but I'm classy. I'm sophisticated. So when I go through trouble, I just like to call my friend or someone that I'm really close to and vent, And in reality, what venting is, is when someone does us wrong, when they make a bad comment to us, we want to call somebody that we know will agree with us so that we can stand on common ground and go, they were wrong and I was right. Can you please agree with that? Can you please justify me in this situation? Many of us vent only to hear the other person was wrong and I was right. And what we do is we take gossip, we take slander, and we give it a virtuous name called venting because we're very classy and sophisticated people. So we need to make sure that we don't just rename our sin, but we actually deal with our sin. All right. Proverbs 17, 4 says, wrongdoers eagerly listen to gossip. Liars play close attention to slander. Now, this is a super challenging verse because it means not only can we speak gossip, but we can't even listen to gossip. Like that's way more difficult. And the reason being is because what you permit, you promote. All right, so when you're in a room and, and your coworker's running down a different coworker, because of what you're permitting, you're promoting what it is that they are speaking. Whenever you listen to it, you participate in it. All right, so that means you and I have a standard. We have a call, a biblical standard, to not partake in gossip and slander when people are trying to run down a coworker or a spouse or a friend or a family member. We are supposed to be people that uphold an honorable way of life, meaning that we reject slander and gossip. And this can be very, very difficult when you've created a habit or a culture of venting of gossip, of slander. So it can really take changing the way that you um, handle problems, you know, changing the way that you process and deal with negative emotions because many times we create a way of dealing with hurt when in reality it's unbiblical and it might even be sinful. All right, so when you listen to it, you participate in it. Rick Warren defines gossip as this. He says, when we are talking about a situation with somebody who is neither part of the problem or part of the solution, then we are probably gossiping. All right, so we have to ask ourselves, when we go to quote unquote vent, are we talking to the person that's part of the problem? Or are they going to be part of the solution? And the solution is not you being justified or feeling better about yourself. The solution is redemption. The solution is bringing people back together, fixing relationships, all right? We should never be seeking justification. We should be seeking redemption, especially in relationships close to us, but in all relationships. Proverbs 25.10 says, others may accuse you of gossip and you will never regain your good reputation. How many of you want to have a good reputation? And it's crazy to think that something like gossip, maybe something like taking venting too far can ruin our reputation. Because chances are, right, if they'll gossip to you, then they might gossip about you. And that just tends to be the culture, not that people have poor hearts or maybe there's people in this room that might have said something wrong about you. Probably not because we're amazing. But the point is, it's normally not as on purpose as you think it is. Sometimes we have just created a bad culture. Maybe we were brought up in a poor culture and it's up to you and I to create mature ways of living. We want to create a healthy culture in our home, right? 
We want to create a culture to where our kids, when they go to talk bad about a kid at school or when they just want to be justified between a teacher and them, we go, hey, hey, bud, is, is the goal redemption right now or do you want to be justified? You might have to pick some different words depending on the age of your child. But is, is the goal redemption or justification? Because by the way you handle yourself, even if you're listening to it, you are promoting it. All right, James 1.26 says, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Now, of course, Paul is, you know, he singles out women here, but everyone can deal with the topic of gossiping. But it just tends to be, you know, men come home from work and you're like, how is, there, how is your day? And you're like, fine. You know, they could either have the best day or the worst day in their life, and their answer is probably going to be fine. You know, like women just tend to talk more, so it's a little bit easier to lead them down this, this path. It doesn't mean that men don't deal with it, or, you know, all of us in this room have dealt with it one time or, or another, but women just tend to talk a little bit more. Men tend to like to use the word fine, and, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but whenever we get alone with other men, we don't talk about our emotions. You know, I don't know if you guys knew that, but we get alone and we talk about like trucks and we talk about sports and no one like starts talking about their emotions. That's pretty rare, right? So it's not just to you guys, right? Because we are just fine, all right? We're fine and everything is fine. That tends to be how men handle things, all right? So that's why many times it happens to be women just because you guys talk a little bit more, like a lot more. I'm not too sure why, but you talk a lot, all right? So and he ends verse three, the second part of verse three says, instead they should teach others what is good. Talking about older women should teach others what is good. William Barclay put it this way in his commentary. He said, it is a Christian's duty to use experience to guide and encourage, never to daunt and discourage. Older people, right? You should use your experience to encourage younger people, not to discourage them. I can't tell you how many times I've had older people look at me and go, you know, well, when you get this, when you get of this age, then you'll understand. You know, whenever you've been around as long as I have, then, then you'll kind of see what it is that I'm talking about. And what that does is it's not a culture of teaching, it's a culture of discouragement, and it's unbiblical. Our goal is to make sure that we're raising up the next generation to take over the mantle that we've been carrying, all right? So the goal isn't to look down on people that's younger than us. The goal is to raise them up in the ways of the Lord, not to go, well, you'll understand in 30 years, but as for now, you're just kind of worthless until you get to that point, all right? The goal is not to discount them or discourage them. The goal is to train them and teach them, all right? And the way that you teach them is by the way that you act, by the way that you behave, all right? I remember years ago, I think I was actually going home from um, Allie's house before we were married. I was driving home and I was listening to, I guess it was Z88. Those were the days, right? It's played the same song 895 times. Mercy me coming up next, you know? It's always mercy me will always be on that station. All right, guys, if you're still listening to that, I'm sorry, but there's better things. You don't have to click the red button. You can check out iTunes radio, you know, it's not only mercy me out there, but anyway, they're talking about this um, quote from Proverbs 31 ministries. And they said, the greatest gift you can ever give your children is to show true love to your spouse. And it's because if you want your daughter to see what a marriage is meant to look like, the man that she's meant to look for, you have to be willing to show her what a loving husband looks like, what a generous husband looks like. Because again, statistically speaking, a husband will look for a woman that's like his, like his mom and a daughter will look for a husband like her dad. Did I say that right? You guys get the point though. All right, so the way that we conduct ourselves in our marriage is not just about our marriage, but it's about our legacy that we're leaving for our children. The way that we honor our husbands, the way that we love our wives, we're setting an example for the relationship that our children will one day have. Because remember, they'll remember some of what you say, 
but they'll remember all of the way that you made them feel. So we wanna make sure that when we enter into marriage that we're taking it seriously because it's not just about the relationship with our spouse, but it's about the relationship that our children are gonna one day have. So remember, we wanna make sure that we plan well, that we love well, that we honor well because we're leaving a lasting legacy. And maybe your legacy doesn't look so good, all right? But this is the thing, is you can create a new one. Maybe you've had a divorce. Maybe you've had two divorces. Maybe there's a long line of divorce, you know, seven generations up in your family. Guess what? You can be the one that changes it, all right? You can go, hey, guess what? Mom and dad have screwed up, but from this point forward, I want you to see the way that we're gonna conduct ourselves. I love your father. I respect, I respect him. You know, I love your mom. This is how we're gonna treat each other. Hey, we're not gonna talk back to mom. All right, it does no good to say we're not gonna talk back to mom when you talk back to mom all the time. All right, so the way that we conduct ourselves, children will Remember, we want to make sure that we create a culture of honor in our homes. Verse 5, halfway done. I'm doing great, guys. I only have not much time. Here we go. (laughs) To live wisely and pure. All right, so again, still talking about women. All right, and he says, to live wisely and pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands, then they will not bring shame on the word of God. Now, last week, um, we kind of talked about those complementarian roles in the household, how being respectful of the fact that Christ put the man at the head of the household, but at the same time, the husband is meant to live in a way where he gives up his life. He's constantly dying to himself in love for his wife, okay, and how that looks. In this passage, it's easy to read it, and, you know, especially in our 21st century culture, to read this passage and go, that doesn't sound very empowering to women to work in their homes. Like, are they not allowed to have jobs? And there are many um, people, not as common now, but in the past that would use this verse to justify the fact that women are not supposed to work. So again, we want to make sure that when we read passages like this, we're reading it with an ancient Greek, specifically this verse, reading it with an ancient Greek culture in mind, all right? So an ancient Greek culture, did you know that women had their own quarters in the home? Women did not eat meals with the men. They had their own quarters that no other man was allowed to walk in except for their husband. They lived a very secluded life. When they found themselves, you know, going for a walk on the streets, they could only do so accompanied by their husband. While you're walking down the street, it was seen as illegal to have a conversation with a woman. They were meant to keep their head down and to be silent, all right? They lived a very different type of culture than we live today. They didn't go to public assemblies or meetings, rarely traveled anywhere. In fact, it has been said that there was no honorable way which a Greek woman could make a living. No trade or profession was open to her, and if she tried to earn a living, she was driven to prostitution. All right, so this was like the opportunity for women in ancient Greek culture. Like, if you'd like to leave the home and work, like, there's prostitution. All right, so when we read these verses, Paul isn't saying, hey, do not allow women to be doctors. Don't allow them to go and make money for themselves. He's saying, hey, make sure you keep them in the home because prostitution is not an honorable way for them to live. All right, we need to understand culture. And yes, Jesus came and literally led the revolution for women. All right, did you guys know that? And um, again, we're talking about Greek culture right now, but Jewish culture wasn't very different. All right, at the time when Jesus was alive, one of the leading Pharisees at the time was quoted saying, I would rather burn the Torah than ever teach it to a woman. And one of the reasons why they wanted to kill Jesus is because he was teaching women. When he was teaching and Mary and Martha were going crazy, guess what? Where was Mary? 
She was in the men's quarters sitting at his feet and he was teaching her. The woman at the well, Jesus acted in an illegal manner by entering into conversation with another woman. Jesus constantly broke the cultural norm and broke laws in order to um, lead the revolution for women. And I think a lot of times we read scripture with our 21st century mindset and we expect them to break every single cultural boundary within two years. Like things take time. Things take time in order for people to get, you know, depending on where you view this whole other topic, but egalitarian or complementarian, I won't kind of blur that line. But the point is, it takes time to get to the position where God designed it, all right? And I think God shows this in Genesis, right? The woman was taken out of the man. Where was she taken from? His side, right? She wasn't taken from his foot. She wasn't taken from his head because she was meant to stand beside him, not under or above him, right? God created men and women to rule together beside one another where the man fully loves the wife and the wife fully loves and honors the man, even if there's separate roles, all right? So when we read passages that are through the lens of ancient Greek culture, ancient Jewish culture, we have to understand that the Bible isn't sexist towards women. The Bible was written in a time and a culture that was extremely oppressive and sexist towards women, but it was leading the revolution towards freedom. And those things take time, all right? There's eyewitness reports in the Bible taken by women, which was illegal. Like all of these things were illegal at the time, and yet the Bible participated in it because they were leading the revolution for women. So when it says, says things like to work in their homes, it's not just saying that, you know, a woman can never work, they can never step outside their home. It's saying, hey, we want to live honorable lives and prostitution isn't honorable for you. Does that make sense? All right, so we want to understand that when we read scripture, do not use your 21st century mindset. Use ancient Greek and ancient Jewish cultures mindset, all right? So the simple fact is, you know, with all that being said, if a woman does want to stay at the home and that be her sole job, there's no more honorable position than pouring in to the legacy of her children, right? If a woman wants to be a doctor or a nurse, you know, God bless that too, right? We're not into the whole, um, that's a different theology to me. Anyway, so moving on, I believe it's God's desire for men and women to rule together. That's why the woman was taken from his Side. All right, verse six. We got to move along here. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. Even though he's making a distinction between gender and age, the goal is, you know, all of us are meant to embrace this type of living. So he doesn't get specific on the younger men because he's just meant to encourage them with the type of maturity that the older men and women are living because we want to make sure that we're training the next generation. You know, all that stuff with the baby, baby boomer generation that's looking down on the millennial generation. Do you know whose legacy that is? All of the comments that came from that generation, do you know whose legacy you're speaking against? You're speaking against your own legacy. If our next generation is screwing up, is selfish, is arrogant, we have to be willing to take a form of responsibility on ourselves, realizing that that was our legacy that we booted. That was our legacy that we stumbled, that we fell short on. Not that I believe the whole millennial legacy is a mess up. I'm just saying all of those comments, they were speaking against their own legacy, all right? We should be training people up in the way that they should go, all right? So we have a responsibility for that. A few more verses, verse seven through eight now. And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose you will be ashamed and have nothing to say about us. All right. So Titus had to be more than just a teacher and more than just a preacher, but he had to be an example by the way that he 
lived. His guidance to others could not be taken seriously if he himself was not taking it seriously. Again, because they'll remember some of what you say, but they'll remember all of the way that you make them feel. Okay, so the way that we teach people many times is not just by the words that we use, although that's very impactful still, but it's by the way that we live our lives, right? If you want to teach your child to be generous, don't tell them that generosity is important. Show them how important generosity is. If you think forgiveness or love, whatever it is that you want to be on, you know, kind of the pillars of your household that you want to, you want to value and train your children up and show them how important it is to you. Show them how much it means in your family culture that this is what we value and model it for them. And those will be the type of principles that will stay with them for the rest of their lives, all right? You want to make sure that you model it for them. Already on to 9 and 10, and then we'll be done, all right? You guys having so much fun? I am. All right, verse 9, here we go. Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. All right, so again, ancient Greek culture, okay? So we're going to take ourselves back. I did an entire message on slavery. So if you guys missed that message, highly recommend it, all right? You can go search on the podcast, slavery, and it's in there. Just to kind of recap, again, I've said this before, NLT version is a thought-for-thought translation, all right? ESV is known as a word-for-word translation. So the ESV translates it this way. It says, bond servants are to be submissive to their masters in everything, okay? Again, what is a bond servant. Many times when we hear the word slavery, we think of slavery in you know, the 1800s where we would take people and we would force them to work against their will. That's not what a bond servant is. We've talked about this before. A bond servant many times was established when people couldn't feed their families or they were headed towards you know, actual death because of poverty. In today's culture, you walk outside and there's like 10,000 work wanted signs. You might not like the pay, you might not like the occupation, but there is opportunity, all right? In ancient culture, there was no opportunity. Like if your crops died, you were probably going to die, all right? So what would happen is people would go to the wealthy and they would enter into a voluntary servitude where the master and the quote-unquote slave or bond servant would agree on terms. You guys will see this in the story of Laban, all right? So they enter into a voluntary servitude where they agree on terms. They'll be like, I will work for you for 10 years and you will feed me, you'll clothe me, I'll live here, I'll get this amount of pay, and at the end of the 10 years, the contract is over, all right? And that's what bond servants were. That's how they acted. So many people will use this passage and talk about how the Bible's pro-slavery. Many Christians used this passage in the past to you know, talk about why slavery is biblical. It's absolutely ridiculous, all right? So if you missed the message, you know, I went into great detail But again, we see it in scripture, Jacob and Laban, and a lot of people entered into voluntary servitude. So the point is, voluntary servitudes or, you know, you and I working for our employers, we are meant to be submissive to what it is that they're telling us. If you want to be a good worker, you shouldn't be back talking your boss all the time. All right, you shouldn't be talking about your boss behind their back because guess what? You can leave anytime you want. I don't know if you know this, but you actually signed up for your job, all right? So we want to make sure that we have a good reputation, that we honor the people that we're working for, even if they are wrong, all right? Even if they do you wrong, even if they're sinful, even if they screw up, you know, we're spent to live an honorable life and work for people as though we're working for the Lord. All right, that's how you and I are meant to conduct ourselves. So the end of that passage says, but we must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. They will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. 
All right, so you and I, again, you might not be a bond servant, but chances are you have some type of job, all right? You and I, in the way that we live, are meant to make ourselves attractive, are meant to make the gospel attractive by the way that we live. So the way that we interact with coworkers, the way that we interact with family members, with clients, with people that want to tell you their life story while you're trying to get your job done, the way that we interact with people like that is the gospel message that we're leaving. Like, um, like Titus was meant to leave an impression, you and I leave impressions on all of the people around us. And the question is, what type of impression are you leaving at your job? at your school? What is the reputation that you have? Is your reputation as an honorable and upright man or woman? Or do you have the same reputation as everybody else? Because we are meant to live an honorable life because by the way that you and I live, we're reflecting the gospel message that we're a part of. There's a cool story that E.F. Brown tells, and he talks about a Christian servant in India who was once sent by his master, this is old, um, you know, voluntary servitude, with a verbal message which he knew to be untrue. He refused to deliver it. Though his master was very angry at the time, he respected the servant all the more afterwards because he knew that he could always trust him in his own matters. The truth is that at the end, the world comes to see that the Christian worker is the one most worth having. In one sense, it is hard to be a Christian at our work. In another sense, it is easier than we think, for there is not a matter under the sun who is not, there is not a master under the sun who is not desperately looking for a worker whose loyalty is efficient and they can rely on it. That should be our reputation as workers, that we're loyal, that we're efficient, that you can rely on us, that we get things done. Why? Because we're working for people as though we're working for the Lord and we're leaving impressions on everybody that we're around. We want to love people well. We want to serve people well. When Jesus came, he was the, not the ultimate ruler. He came as the ultimate servant. And that's who you and I are meant to replicate. We want to make sure that we're serving the people around us, that we're serving our clients, that we're serving our bosses, the people in authority, because we want to make sure that we're not just honoring them, but we're doing it to honor God. God, I want to honor you in the way that I work. It doesn't matter what your job is. Can you imagine that the way that you work is bringing honor to the Father? Next time you're on an assembly line or in a hospital or dealing with an annoying client, I want you to remember, God, I'm going to honor you through this interaction. I'm going to honor you by working hard, by having creativity, by having patience. I'm going to honor you well. We'll close just after this story. There's a very famous story, you might have heard it, by St. Francis, and it goes that one day he said to one of his young students, let's go down to the village and preach to the people. And as they were going down, they stopped to talk to this man and to that. They went into the shops and bought food, and he seemed to make small talk with every single person possible. Francis stopped and played with the children and he exchanged greetings with the people that passed by. And after all of this time, he just turned and started to go home. But father, said the novice student, when do we preach? Preach, he smiled, Francis. Every step we took, every word we spoke, every action we did has been a sermon today. Every single action, every single smile that you and I have is a sermon, is an impression that we leave on the people around us, on our children, on our family members, on our coworkers, on our clients. And the question is, what impression have you been leaving? Because I want to make sure it's an honorable one, that it's an honest one, and that it's one filled with integrity. Because again, you might be the only Jesus that someone ever experiences. You will get to talk to people that I never will. 
You will have family members and coworkers and people that come into your shops or businesses that I will never get to speak to, but you will. And it's by the way that you conduct yourself, by the way that you handle the interaction, by the way that you speak, and by the things that you say that will leave a lasting impression. Some plant the seed and another harvest. And the question is, which one are you and I going to do this week? Because we have a job to do and we have a kingdom to build. We're not just here to entertain ourselves, to choose what we want now, but we want to make sure that we're choosing what we want most. All right, so your homework for this week, I hope you guys did your last week homework. Do you remember what it was? You're meant to ask your wife, how can I show you more love, right? And wives were meant to ask their husbands, how can I show you more honor and respect as the leader of our home, right? Did you guys do your homework? If you didn't, you got to do your homework, okay? Do your homework, all right? This week's homework is we need to ask ourselves, what do we want most? What do I want most? Maybe it's being a great father, a great husband, a great Christ follower. Maybe it's being successful in business. Whatever it might be, write it down. Put it in your note. It takes like five seconds. What do I want most? And I want to make sure you don't have to be as disciplined as Elon or as Mike Tyson, but you need to make sure that you have discipline that's pointing you towards your goals. If it's to be a great parent, then chances are you should read a parenting book. If it's to be a great husband, chances are you should read some books about marriage, right? Did you guys know it takes approximately 25 years of knowledge to write a book? So when you read a book, did you know you receive somewhere around 25 years of knowledge? I think everyone should set a goal at least, I think this is very, very minimum, to read one book a month, all right? Because we want to be people that tune our ears to wisdom, like Proverbs 2 says, tune our ears to wisdom, concentrate on understanding, right? We don't rub the genie in the bottle and go, God, make me smart. We tune our ears to wisdom. We concentrate on knowledge and understanding. And God uses that knowledge and understanding and helps us apply it in our lives. All right, what do you want most, because you're not going to rise to the level of your goals, you're going to fall to the level of your habits. All right, I'm going to pray for you guys, and then we're going to go, all right? So God, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you that you care about us. You know, we're so little, so small, so insignificant, yet you've chosen us to be a part of establishing your kingdom, of leaving your legacy God, I ask that you'll help us realize what's important, that we won't live our lives wasting time. We won't live our lives with it always being about us, always about entertainment, but we will have some form of discipline. If you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to like and subscribe for more from your Reclaim Church family. God bless, and we hope that you have an amazing week.